and welcome back to A Pagan Heart in Maine. On today's episode, I talk with author Katrina Ray Solis, and I talk about shiny red buttons. To start us off today, this is Wendy Rule with Dance of the Wild Fairies. So here's the situation. You walk into a room, and in the center on the table is a box with a shiny red button. Next to it is a sign that says, don't touch. You know that if you press the button, something incredibly good or bad will happen. Of course, no one will know if you press the button or not, and you would not be blamed for anything, nor would you be given credit. So here's the question. How long does it take before you press the button? Some people would worry about it. What if they pressed it and something bad happened? 
Then what if you pressed it and something good happened? What if by pressing the button you found a cure for cancer or world peace? What if everyone in the world was happy and secure? What if it caused a natural disaster or a war? Would you just stare at the button or would you walk away? I think some people would philosophize over it, try to justify pressing the shiny red button. Some people would just give in to curiosity. Some would make themselves sick over it. Some people would run from it and not want to even be a part. Knowing how I think, I wouldn't do good with this. No, I wouldn't worry about it at all. I know that when I entered the room, I'd be pressing the button and giggling like a schoolgirl before I could complete a full conscious thought. I mean, it's a big shiny red button. I have to push it. Now I'm thinking I should be terrified by this realization. I know part of it is that I'm probably going to push the button anyway at some point in time, so why not just do it? Then there are the people who say they would never push the button. And I don't know if I want to really be around people like that. Each day we push big shiny red buttons, and each day we make decisions that may or may not be bad or good. Some decisions are made with forethought and some we justify, some we worry about. And the reason I would push the button quickly is I would worry more about what if I didn't. What would I possibly miss or give up in this life by not pushing the button? I know that some of the buttons I have pressed in my life have not been good to me. But if I had to do it over again, I would still press the button. Because everything that has happened to me makes me who I am today. And when I wake up in the morning and see that big shiny red button, I start giggling. What new things will happen to me today? A health to the mothers of the merry begotten A health to the maiden with the fiery eyes A health to the crown that smiles beside us On the other side of a building fire I help to the sweet rain gently falling down upon the earth so fair I help to the wind that gales around us And feeds the passion of a building fire
And that was Gaia Consort with Beltane Fires. And I am here today with Katrina Ray Salas. She is known in the pagan community as friend of pagan podcasters everywhere. <laughs> and welcome to A Pagan Heart. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, you started listening to pagan podcasts when? When you had three episodes out. Three episodes. And you were my first podcast that I discovered. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, and that was, oh goodness, that has been... That's what, a long time ago. Six years, maybe? Probably. Yeah. That sounds right. And now I listen to about 45 different podcasts, and you started it all. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, Katrina, we found out, lives just down the road, one town over from where I live, and... I think we first met at the Pagan Podcast Supermoot back in... <laughs> Is that four years ago now? Maybe four years ago. Five years ago, maybe? And that was back in 2011 that, uh, that we actually first met. Five years. Five years. That's a long time. <laughs> so... And now, from there, who was the, I think you started listening to what, Mojo and Sparrow after yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, the first episode that I listened to of yours, because what happened was I was in a spiritual slump mm -hmm. and just Googled main pagans to see who I could find, and your podcast came up when I Googled that, and then from that search I was like, wait, what is this podcast thing? And I went, again. I mean, I listened to everybody. Cool. Everybody. And it all started because I listened to you first. <laughs> yeah. So when did you find um, Firelight's pod podcast? Oh, gosh. I don't know exactly. It had to have been probably, about a, probably around the same time. It, I went on like a, a binge. Like I was listening to podcasts from sunup to sundown mm -hmm. for months there. And uh, I listened to all of them. I'm sure it was somewhere in there. I bring that up because, hi, Firelight. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> So we're sitting here just after we had a uh, nice barbecue today and Firelight had posted a couple pictures <laughs> of some wonderfully sparkly mugs that... Uh, I think they're like chalices. Really. Chalices, yes. I think they're, yeah, they're I, I would, like plastic Walmart chalices. I would call them a chalice. <laughs> give, give them a nice formal name and, uh, and uh, an apocalyptic chalice. An apocalyptic, apocalypt, that's what they are now. Those yeah. are apocalyptic chalices. And and our good friend Firelight had posted a couple of these on <laughs> the uh, the interwebs and of course uh, Katrina and I said, oh, we, we have got to have these. <laughs> they're we have so to great. have these. So, <laughs> they're so great. Really. Li literally an hour after he posted this, I went to Walmart and proceeded to buy the said chalices which we have been drinking meat out of today, which is quite delicious. It was. So It's a good day for a sitting in the light drizzle for the fire. <laughs> it was nice. It was it very, was very nice. nice. And uh, actually the mead was made by our good friend Carrie up at Forest Sanctuary. She's been on the podcast before. Who I've known longer than I knew you. I've known her for nine years. I oh, think. wow. Because I've known her since her son was very little. But she was one of the first group... Um, rituals I ever attended was at her house when I was just a baby pagan. Ah. <laughs> and she, she does have a wonderful little church up there in she the woods. She does. It's beautiful so. out there. So now Katrina is an author and I'm actually sitting here with her book, her first first published book. First book published, yes. Called By the River by Katrina Ray Solis. And the artwork for By the River was done by your w wife, Trisha. Yes. Trisha Mori, she is a freakishly talented artist. She gets mad at me when I say it that way, but she is freakishly talented. She is a wonderful artist. <laughs> she works in oil paints and acrylics and charcoal and sometimes does wood burnings and whatever she can do. Um, and she did the book cover design for this book, and it's amazing. It is. It's wonderful. We do like our arts, don't we? Right. And um, it's a great little book. I recommend you go out and get it. But more importantly, since I do have the author sitting right in front of me, um, tell us about it. Oh, um, all right. So By the River is a collection of short stories based on really unique moments in particularly Maine history. 
the oldest setting in the in the book is right around it's it spans about a hundred years so the oldest setting is right around 1900 and then the newest one would be set maybe in the early 2000s and it goes in order in the book maine has some really unique history and it's fascinated me since i was a child when i was doing my bachelor's degree in writing i just kind of started pursuing these maine stories and finding some really interesting things that have happened here in this weird little state of ours where do you start looking for stories like that the first story in that book came from my high school history teacher in Rumford, where I'm from, out in, out in the mountains there, out in the Bethel ski country mm-hmm. area. There's a paper mill, which is probably going to be gone in the next 10 years because everything's going down that way. Um, but there's a paper mill out there that when it was first built, the people who built it built the mill, built the houses that the workers lived in, built the walking bridge between the mill and the houses that the workers lived in and built all the bars in between so that when the house when the workers went to work got their paychecks crossed that walking bridge toward home they had to go past about a dozen bars before they could get to their houses which meant that their paychecks literally fed right back into the people who owned the mill wow and uh which was a pretty common i mean it's not that's not really unique to maine Mm -hmm. lots of Anytime you look at industrial history, you find that kind of situation going on. But you don't normally think about that. Right, but when you're 14 years old sitting in a history class and your teacher tells you that this is why all the people in your neighborhood are drunks, you go, (laughs) wait a second. (laughs) This happened over 100 years ago and it still affects me. This is why Mm -hmm. everybody that lives around me drinks is because all these bars have been there for 100 years. Wow. And then it kind of feeds into any writer's mind, I suppose. Mm -hmm. It becomes a thing. But Maine just has some really weird history. Like, one of the stories in the book is based around a situation in Bangor when two beluga whales swam upriver into the city. And it was uh, somewhere in between World War I and World War II, so everybody thought that they were submarines. Kids were, like, shooting bows and arrows at them. Oh, wow. I mean, it, it disrupted the whole city for three days. They couldn't figure out what to do with these belugas. And... There were talks of um, killing them. There were all kinds of things people were talking about what to do with these two whales that were just sitting in the middle of Bangor. One of the newspaper articles I read on it said, perhaps the whales figured out that that they were after them because they left overnight. Oh, wow. So I based the whole story around those two whales. Cool. Cool. It's just some... I don't know. I find history stories and they inspire me. Now... When you get inspired by stuff, what what's the process? What's how do you take what's what you've read about, spin it around in your head, and then put it back on paper? What- I think a lot of it is subconscious. I think a lot of it. I think stories are spinning around in my head for years before I even know they're there, because the book that I'm working on now is very pagan in theme. Um, it's about a female chieftain of a clan in perhaps ancient Ireland, but I've kind of played with that detail. It uh-huh. could be ancient anywhere. It could just be like some made-up world. Um, just lots of red hair and <laughs> lots of red hair. <laughs> People might paint themselves blue. Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah, some. Yeah. There's definitely some things that lend yourself to ancient Ireland, but sure, sure. not necessarily. And it literally. I mean, I woke up one morning and the entire plot line from beginning to end for a full novel was in my head. But then when I started writing it down and going through my journals, I realized that I'd actually been working on it for a couple of years. So I just didn't know. It that just that's started what clicking together. On. Right. There's just little scenes that play out in my mind when I'm daydreaming. And then eventually it all clicks together and it becomes a cohesive story. Cool. So when you get an idea... Do you find that you have to write it down right away or it disappears? Or is it something that sticks with you and just spins around in your head or does it get mixed up with other ideas? How do you keep all of that straight, especially if you have an ADD type of... Ironically, I've written a blog on exactly that subject, which will be out next week. Oh, really? Um, it'll be on my publishers. My publisher that published my book, I also am uh, one of their editors for their other books that they publish and I have recently they asked me to do a an ongoing blog uh, we're calling it margin notes because I'm the queen of sarcastic margin notes 
<laughs> I, I write not just sarcastic margin notes, but just, you know, light, happy, do you need a beer yet kind of margin notes. I was, I was going to ask, what, what are some examples of like, what you would consider a sarcastic... Um, I talk back to the characters in the margin notes. Like, oh, nice. Um, when my, you know, if I'm editing for somebody and they have a character who, for instance, I've edited a lot of romance novels, not my genre. <laughs> um, but if they have a female character, being the screaming feminist that I am, they have a female character who I feel is not necessarily living up to her potential. I might talk back to her in the margin notes <laughs> <laughs> and maybe tell her she should take some advice from. Beyonce. <laughs> you so, know. So, so, are you the type of person that when you're watching a horror movie, you're yelling at the people on the screen, "Don't go behind the door. There's, a, there's a monster there." Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely me. <laughs> cool. That's definitely me. Yeah. So, I've written a blog post that'll be out next week for BGP Publishing's um, website, and what I talk about on it, um, without giving away the whole thing. Stephen King has actually been known to say, don't write everything down, which for most writing, I mean, I told my writing professor, I said to my writing professor, look, this is this thing Stephen King said, and he was horrified. Oh my God, don't give that advice to anyone. That's <laughs> horrible. You have to write everything down. What if you lose it? I have this theory that the things you're meant to write, the books you're meant to write, you're going to write. Mm. And the art you're meant to create, you're going to create. And if you don't create it, and this, I kind of have to steal, steal this theory from Elizabeth Gilbert too. If you don't create that piece of art, it's still out there in the, in the atmosphere. And some artist is going to. Because I, it's meant to be. I have actually had that happen. I've actually gotten what I have thought is an absolutely brilliant idea. And I've actually, you know, written it down and, and, and it's like, Oh, great. I gotta start writing this down. And then something says, but check the internet first. Make sure somebody else hasn't. And make sure someone else hasn't made it. And then I see my exact book. Yeah. What I was gonna write about has already been taken. And I sit there and go, ah. <laughs> oh, well, it was a good idea. And then I just go on to the next one. Right. On Elizabeth Gilbert's podcast, Big Magic or Magic Lessons. One of those is her book, the other one is her podcast. I don't remember which is which. She talks about, I believe it's Ann Patchett. She had an idea. Elizabeth Gilbert had an idea for a book. She kept on thinking she wanted to write it. She kept starting it, but she couldn't really get it. She abandoned it for a different book. And I believe that was when she started writing her most recent book. I can't remember the name of. And then a year later ran into Ann Patchett at some conference of writers and discovered Ann Patchett had written the book that she was going to write. Oh, wow. And her theory yeah. was that because she abandoned it, that book went off to find a different Someone author. Someone else, yep. And so with Stephen King saying, don't write everything down, that comes twofold. The books you're meant to write, you're going to write, or somebody else is going to write them. Because the world needs them either way. And the world has a way of making them happen. And maybe Stephen King is saying, don't write this down, so the idea comes and hits him. <laughs> maybe he is. <laughs> <laughs> but the second half of the theory is... If you write it down immediately, you're writing down an infantile thought. But if you let it really cook up in your brain and you let it marinate for a while, you might write down a toddler thought. And uh. if you write down an infantile thought, it's there's this phrase in the writing world, they always say, kill your babies, which is part of the editing process. Well, you isn't have to that a pleasant... <laughs> kill, kill your baby. You will see that written on walls in writing classrooms. But it well, doesn't mean what you think it is. I suppose it's better to be uh, written on walls of writing classrooms rather than written on walls of nurseries. <laughs> I told you I was going to bring up the fact that you're an evil clown. So if you want to talk about scaring children. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm sort of an evil clown. I, I kind of resisted <laughs> the evil side. And uh, everyone is welcome to go back. And, and I can't remember what number of podcasts. <laughs> One of my earlier podcasts I talked about that. But, but yes, uh, most clowns eventually succumb to, to Evil. the dark side. they're horrible creatures. Yes. Absolutely. So, kill your babies. Kill your babies. <laughs> kill your babies means in the editing process, the things you're most attached to, if they're not working, you really have to let them go. Even if they're beautiful, even if that line is great. Just if hold it's them not underwater working, and... you have to hold it underwater until the bubbles stop coming up. Wow. That's my wow. wife's phrase. I totally stole that from her. Nice. <laughs> nice. But if you let it, but if we, you let we are marinate. learning so much today. This is this is wonderful. <laughs> right. I had no idea that that my listeners would get such a treasure trove of useful information. 
<laughs> I'm full of information. That's cool. That's neat. But yeah, so, that's my theory. If you let it marinate, you let it grow into a toddler. It might even be a small child. And then it'll be closer to actually being publication worthy. But how do you find that place between when you let that idea out of your head or lose that idea? Completely. Completely. That's a really good question. Let me know if you figure that out. Yeah, because that, I'd be so afraid and, and, and now... I'm talking as a person that I have several books written on my computer that are just sitting there, not fully <laughs> fleshed out, but the ideas are there, and I'm just terrified that at some point that uh, I'm going to actually see the book published under a different author's name. <laughs> but um, I think there's, I think for me at least, the things that I'm supposed to write don't let me not write them down. They haunt me, and they don't go away. And I, I just, I can't get rid of them. I had something come up on my Facebook on this day memories thing the other day about I, I had written on Facebook these two old biddies, their their story just they keep haunting me, and I need to write about these two old women, but I don't know who they are yet. They're the opening story in By the River. Hmm. Okay. They haunted me for a good six months. So maybe maybe the story is that. You don't write down and don't remember, you're not supposed to write. Right. Or maybe they were going to be crap to begin with. Oh, that's possible. You don't know. So I think, I think the things you're... I mean, I, I say this as somebody who always has a notebook with me. I mean, cool. I always have a notebook with me, so I do, I do write a lot of things down. But the things that you're really meant to write down, I think they won't let go. Wow. Cool. That's my theory. Who knows? No, it sounds like a great, could be great theory. Wrong. Like I said, my professors did not like that theory. <laughs> well, I'm sure when you say kill your babies to your professors, it's they like told they me just, that. They told you. Oh, that. that totally comes from my professors. Kill your babies is. I don't even know. I don't know who started that, but okay, the, everybody, hit the internet, <laughs> look it up. In the editing world, the phrase "kill your babies" is used a lot. Wow. Outside the editing world, people think we're crazy. Well, especially when you go around making statements like "randomly kill, saying, your, kill your babies,", babies. <laughs> yes. that that you got to understand that that could legitimately be misconstrued. It definitely as something <laughs> totally different than okay, get rid of your your little ideas into <laughs> you know murdering your babies and holding them under water. Kill your babies. Yes. Kill your babies. Yes. So. Cool. <laughs> So, what other ideas? I say, I say that phrase so easily that I don't even think about it. I just say, kill your babies. Like, because yes. that's what. Yeah, and, and, and you say it with such joy and with such a smile <laughs> on your face that, that you know, it's just like, this interview's over. Thank you, everybody, for coming today. He's never run, back to Run! Himself. Run for your lives! <laughs> so. So is that the only book that you're working on right now? I am always working on multiple projects at once. I, I have like, I don't know, writer's ADHD of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> I bounce from project to project. Eventually I finish one and it actually gets published into an amazing little book that I can actually say, hey, look, I finished something. But it takes a while. I am working on a play based on a woman named Jeanne de Monscaglione. I don't know if I say that name right at all. That could be mm -hmm. completely wrong. Who knows? That's what I say to my head. Um, she was a World War II hero, heroine, whatever you want to call her, mm -hmm. hero. She's personally responsible for the lives of about 2,000 Jewish children. Oh, wow. And uh, fascinating woman. And when I came across her, she's on, she's on like some, you know, she's on the... Jewish Holocaust Memorial website and a couple other places. I think I've heard the story before. Yeah, yeah, I probably have posted it on Facebook too because I always talk about what that I'm might doing have. That there. might have been where I saw it. <laughs> but she was a Catholic school teacher and was asked by another woman if she would help in a Jewish kindergarten specifically because the Jewish teachers were no longer allowed to teach because the Nazis wouldn't allow them to teach, but they still needed teachers. And she said, yes, I'll do that. And then she discovered, or she was, she was at the school, and the way she tells it in a couple of interviews that I've read of hers, the Gestapo showed up and started taking children away right out of her classroom. Oh, wow. And she couldn't handle that. That was like 
heartbreaking for her. Members of her family were involved in the resistance against the Nazi regime, so this regime, so this wasn't, I mean, this was, her whole family was doing this, and uh, she arranged for the adoption of about 2,000 Jewish children by Catholic families. Wow. So she and a couple of other, a couple of other women organized and, and did this, and that, to me, I was like, you know, you hear about this guy saved 800 people, and this guy saved 500 people. This woman saved 2,000 people. Wow. Like, where's her movie? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that got me started, and I have not stopped. I've actually contacted people who knew her and her husband. She passed away about a year before I heard her story for the first time. So when you go to write something like that, when you go to write a story like that, is it do you try and is it going to be from like a first person point of view or from a narrator point of at view? At this or? point, I have two different directions I'm going with this story, and it will all depend on how much research I can find. So, I have been researching her extensively for two years. Like I said, I've contacted members of I've, her husband was a teacher in North Carolina. There's actually more literature out about him than there is about her because he was a really um, well regarded professor at a college down there. And so I've contacted other professors from that college. I've contacted, I mean, I've, I've been all over. I, I'm not shy. So, okay. <laughs> so I've been all over contacting everybody, trying to find out more information about this amazing woman. So if any of your listeners know anybody who knows <laughs> her, <laughs> I would be all over that. Uh, but where I go with it will all depend on what I find for research. At this point, I have a, I have a stage play written that's loosely based on her, but I've played with the details a lot because I can't find the details about her, so I really have Mm -hmm. to make it up. But I also, I would love to write something more factual about her eventually. Cool. Cool. So, So what other, what other books are inside your head right now? Hmm. What other other ones have you not killed off and held underwater or (laughs) thrown into a... I'm working on a um, ghost story in a hotel. A ghost story in a hotel. It's yes, it's I work in a hotel, a yep. very cookie cutter Marriott that looks like every other cookie cutter Marriott anywhere on the in the world. Overlook? Overlook hotel. <laughs> it's um yeah. So I uh <laughs> it could be could be kinda like overlook. And we just there's one shelf in the hotel that I think they put up slightly crooked and every book we put on it falls. So it became this ongoing, we had an employee that passed away a couple of years ago, and it became this ongoing thing that he was haunting the hotel, and he's oh, wow. the one who keeps on knocking over that book, and that's what we tell everybody. Nice. And uh, that progressed into me writing an actual story about two or three ghosts living in this hotel. So that story, <laughs> that book is, um, it is complete in three by five cards on my living room door. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. I've got it taped up on the door itself, and most of it written down, but I have to actually finished writing that one. Nice. But nice. it's a fun one. A lot of, like, playing with how we feel about our own deaths and our own mortality, but in a very silly, perhaps Neil Gaiman-y way. Okay. <laughs> cool. And, of course, I write stage plays. I've been working on a few of those lately because I'm a huge theater nerd. So what's what's different from writing a book than writing a stage play? Everything. Everything. Sometimes I write, like, I've written um, the fairy book that I actually mentioned that was the reason that I wanted to listen to Wendy Rule. That is a complete book that I have finished, that I have sent off to a few publishers and has been rejected a few times. Now, so it hasn't now, found its home yet. Now, we should talk about that because we haven't mentioned that to the podcast audience yet. We've talked about that. Off, <laughs> the fairy off, book? The fairy book, yes, yes. the fairy book. The fairy book is a middle grade, maybe YA fiction novel um, that is currently looking for a publisher. About It's about a little female fairy who is born without wings and how she deals with this sort of disability, only... It's not really a disability, it's just she's a little bit different than other fairies. She's still got magic, she just can't fly. Okay. Um, and it is. it was inspired by a class that I took on Children's Lit where we had to create a map. And being the pagan that I am, my map, of course, was based on, like, 
north, south, east, west, we're completely looking at who lives in these different realms and mm -hmm. like these different realms each have their own powers and their own focus and uh, it kind of grew into this whole fairy world. Cool. Cool. So that one that one is I'm I'm in love with that book. Yeah. And that one's called Cardamom's Vine. Yeah, Cardamom's Vine. Yeah. All the all the fairies in that book are named after spices and herbs. <laughs> it is very much my witchy book. It is very much my witchy book. Cool. And do you think that's going to be the next one or the one? It's going to depend on who who I find a publisher for first. I think the the chieftain, my one about my little Irish chieftain, maybe she's well, Irish. My may maybe chieftain. she's Irish. We don't know. <laughs> Just a lot of red hair and red painted faces. My chieftain girl. Um, that one is not finished. I'm not finished writing it yet. I have the whole storyline. I have the whole outline written, but I have to fill in the gaps. Um, but Cardamom's Mine is complete, and probably, if I check my email right now, there's a rejection from some publisher waiting for me there. <laughs> Wonderful. Because that's I, the process. I, I love rejections. That is the process. Re rejections sure. bring you closer to acceptance. Exactly. Now, when you, when you find yourself, because you said you had the whole outline for that first book all written, do you find that after, as you're writing it, sometimes it changes? It, it did with my hotel book, my hotel, my ghost in the hotel book, which is another one. I have the whole outline written, but I have to fill in the gaps. This is where my ADHD comes into play. I'm filling in gaps on multiple books mm -hmm. all the time, and I, I work in a hotel. I have a very busy lifestyle. I write for 20 minutes in a waiting room at a doctor's office. I write for 10 minutes sitting in my car waiting for a friend to come out of a store. I write for 10 minutes at my desk. So having that outline in place is awesome because I will just bring up that file. I've got it on my iPad. I'll bring up that file. I'll write one scene. Mm -hmm. And that's how I piece together these books. That's the only way to do it when you work full time and you're also an artist, really. Right. I mean, right. I don't have like a whole day I can dedicate to writing ever. I do the same thing. I, tr I try to with, with my, uh, my painting is uh, every day I have to find some time to do it whether right. whether whether it's painting whether it's drawing just drawing out a sketch mm -hmm. or even or even just if I don't even have time for that I'll look up like a YouTube video on different techniques right and and do something that applies to my artwork which I love right so what what advice would you give say other than if you're going to be a writer or if you're going to be an artist do it every day, even if it's only for a 20-minute Steal it from stretch. Velma. Steal it from Velma. Do the stuff. Yeah. Do the stuff. That is the best advice for anything you want to do, whether it's art, whether it's spirituality, whether it's anything. Do the stuff. That's what you have to do. I, lit I do not let a day go by that I don't pick up a pen. And it's, I mean, I don't always write a lot each day, but I write something or I research something every single day. You have to do the stuff. Now, I remember you posted the other day that you had two ideas fighting yes. at the same <laughs> time. So, and of course, I, I mentioned, you know, it's like, if you have two ideas fighting for the same thing, you know, take two of your favorite pens <laughs> and assign one subject to one and one subject to the other. And then whichever pen you pick up, that's what you write about. Right? And then you save the other pen for writing on that one. Yeah. Do you have any favorite pens? I do have favorite pens. You do have favorite pens. I do. I definitely do the Pilot V5s. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, retractable Pilot V5 pens. And the other day, I got to work, and on my way to work, was thinking, I don't think I brought a good pen with me, and I have to have a good pen with me. And I pulled into the parking lot at work, and I got out, and there was a pen on the ground, and it was a Pilot V5 retractable pen. <laughs> ah, it was meant to and be. And I was like, "There's my pen," and I've been writing with that pen for the last week. Nice. <laughs> I definitely have favorite pens. Have to have the right tools for the job. So where can people find your books and your blog and your websites? If they want to find my blog, which is where they can find everything else because it's all on there, it's imaginekatrina.blogspot.com. From there you can find my Facebook, my Twitter, my Instagram. I'm a social media addict. I'm on there every single day, whether I should be or not. <laughs> yeah. um, Goodreads, I'm an avid book reviewer. I review around 100 books a year on Goodreads. Wow. So, so you can always find me over there posting about whatever I'm reading. 
that's a good place to look for me. I'm on Etsy because I knit occasionally. <laughs> cool. So I have an Etsy shop also linked on my... Everything's linked on my blog. Blog's the best place to go. Cool. My book's for sale on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And I will go everywhere. ahead and, and you will, can also find that link on uh, paganheartmain.com. I will put the link up there so everyone can click on that and find your blog and from there every place else. <laughs> and thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. What a blast. It's fun. It's fun. <laughs>
ourselves our tired friends And that was Featherscale with Song for Bridget. And I'm going to call this episode 50. And as always, all music is used with permission of the artists. And you can find links to the artists at paganheartinmaine.com. You can also find me on Facebook as Robert Tracy Weber Chipman. And please write anytime. I love to hear from you all. Thank you again to Katrina Ray Salas for coming on the show today. And you can find her and her books at imaginekatrina.blogspot.com To close out today's show, this is Winter in Eden with Stolen Fairy Tale. Until next time, brightest blessings. <laughs>